Friends, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you'll find this section on page 928 of the little Bibles on the back of the pew in front of you. Uh, This is the the section we'll be in for today in this series on the hope of heaven that we are almost finished with. We've been been here uh, on this theme since the beginning of the year and we've got today and then next week uh, left to go in this series before Jonathan preaches to us uh, a few sermons from from Jonah after that. Uh, While you're flipping over to 1 Thessalonians 4, let me just say that uh, that, uh, I think maybe the saddest show that I have ever watched of any sort is a comedy on Netflix called Afterlife by the British comedian, actor, writer, Ricky Gervais. Afterlife is a clever title for this show. Works on multiple levels, especially given that the show really is about one central question that gets explored episode by episode. What is life after the death of one that you love when you don't believe in an afterlife? What is life after the death of somebody you love when you don't believe in an afterlife? The central character in the show, the one who's played by Ricky Gervais, is a middle-aged reporter in a quaint English village, and he's just lost his wife to cancer. He's a He's coming to grips episode by episode with her death in the age of the smartphone camera where every day he's pulled back to the past watching an endless stream of videos stored in the cloud, a sort of presence on screen that only highlights her absence from real life. This is what it looks like to be haunted in the 21st century. Meanwhile, his father lives on in a nearby nursing home. He's suffering from advanced dementia and struggling to remember his own son. If all those videos drag him back to the past, when he visits his father, he sees his future. This is what he's got to look forward to. Meanwhile, his friends at work don't share his despair. I mean... Grief is always isolating. His certainly is. But their, their lives kind of make you wonder why not. For all, the, for all the charm in their small town setting, they work for this struggling newspaper barely anybody reads, telling stories that no one cares about. Stories about cats that get away and come back home miraculously. Stories about unusually sized vegetables in pr- private gardens. It, it, it's, a, it's a bleak life. It's lovable in a way. It's quirky how faithful they are to him and sticking by him in his despair despite the fact that they don't get it. But there's nothing in work. There's nothing in friendship to dull the sting that this man is living with. And God is conspicuously absent from the whole thing. He's only known by the presence of that absence. A hopelessness that reigns over all of it. And for much of the show, this central character, he is right on the edge of taking his own life. If not for his dog who had been their dog, he probably would have. Afterlife is a far cry from Christian programming. In fact, I can't even recommend it without some qualifications I'd be happy to tell you about later. But it is, it is a really powerful backdrop for the hope at the center of our gospel. It is a terrible thing to grieve without hope. 
And because of Jesus, you don't have to. Friends, you do have to grieve. You don't have a choice about that. But you don't have to grieve without hope. We've been talking about how the hope of heaven affects our lives in the meantime. And this morning, I want to tell you how the hope of heaven makes grief bearable. So this is going to be a sad sermon. If you, can't, if you haven't figured that out yet, this one's going to be a little sad, especially at first. So let me set you up for what we're going to do. Uh, let me just say right here at the beginning, there are a lot of good reasons for grief in our world as it is. But today, I'm going to talk specifically about what I think is the most painful of all griefs. And it's grief over the death of somebody that you love. And I know in a room of this size, with this many people, across this many ages, this many different sets of circumstances, uh, a topic like this one's going to land differently on, on many of you. Uh, you. You aren't all experiencing things in the same way just yet. But I do believe, I'm convinced, it is for all of you. So, so some of you aren't yet grieving. You haven't yet lost someone who's very close to you. Uh, but, but you've got friends in this room who are. So if, if you're not yet resonating with, with, with the pain of having lost someone close, you can think about this sermon today as, as you getting some usable material for comforting people whom God has put around you who desperately need comfort. You can help them. But, but you need this sermon also because if the Lord gives you many, li- many years of, of life in this world, you are going to end up with many reasons to grieve before your life is over. And when you do, you're going to need hope. Now's the time to prepare, to look long and hard at the way things are on earth so so that through honesty about how things really are, you can see the hope that God has provided for us more and more clearly. You're going to need it, so start now. For others of you, I fear because of the grief that you're facing now, because it is so raw, so recent, or so imminent, I realize that, that, that... Today's sermon may be a little bit hard to hear, especially at first. It is going to press you further into what you are probably just wanting not to think about. At least for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, you want to just get away. I get it. I get it. I've felt that before. And if that's where you are this morning, I want to say to you, I am so, so sorry for your pain. I mean, some of you, I know who you are. uh, This is not generic. I'm sorry for the pain that I know you're feeling right now. And I'm sorry in a way that we're going to press further into it because I know that might not be pleasant. But you need it. You need the honesty we're going to bring to this morning. And you need the hope that's on the backside of that honesty. You need to be part of a community that isn't afraid to talk about your real experience right now. You need to know you're not alone in that grief. This morning is part of that. You need to belong to a church that's not shying away from grief, no matter how unpleasant it is. You need to be in a church that wants to share it all. The rejoicing, but also the mourning together. And we need to face up to this because we have no reason to shy away from it if we're we're facing it in Jesus. Grief is our terrain as Christians. Grief is what we know from experience, having experienced God's gift to us in Jesus. What we know is not forever, but is part of our journey, part of our path to a world of no more crying, no more pain, no more tears. So that's what we're doing this morning. We're going to look at grief. We're going to look at it long and hard at first, and and that part's going to be sad. But then we're going to look through it to hope. We're going to look to Jesus, who has come and is returning, and we're going to apply the hope of his coming to what we're feeling now in the meantime. Three steps this morning. Why grief is unavoidable. 
why Christian hope is irreplaceable, and how to grieve in hope. Why grief is unavoidable, why Christian hope is irreplaceable, and how to grieve in hope. I want to read the text that we're going to consider this morning first. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, picking up in verse 13 and reading through verse 18. Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, And with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is God's word. You can be seated. Why grief is unavoidable, that's where I want to start. You maybe notice this before Paul informs them about the hope of the resurrection. He just simply acknowledges the fact that they're still grieving. He assumes grief is part of their life because grief is unavoidable. That's why he's so eager to speak into it. And before we look at what he has to say, I think it's worth taking just a moment more to talk about why we're going to need what he has to say so badly. Why, why grief is unavoidable. This is the sad part of the sermon, but bear with me. Uh, Because the hope is going to taste sweeter on the other side of it. Let me try to sum up for you why grief is unavoidable. I'd sum it up as the result of three combined factors. Relationships are precious. Everyone loses everyone. And there's nothing on earth to draw that sting. That's why grief is unavoidable. Relationships are just simply precious. But everyone loses everyone. And there's nothing on earth to draw that sting. The most meaningful things in life are relationships of love with other people. I don't care how introverted you are, how much you might like your space, how much you might get worn out by time around others, how much you love peace and quiet, whether you might think of yourself as an animal person and not a people person. I don't care about any of that. You know it's true. You need love in your life. Last year, uh, two researchers from Harvard published the results of the longest running study of human life ever conducted. It's a book called The Good Life. It's, it's just fascinating. This is a study that was, began, that was begun in, in 1938 with more than 700 original participants. And it followed them for the whole course of their life and then 1,300 or so of their descendants over the course of their lives. And it's actually still going on. Decades later, it's still going on. But they've published a lot of what they found about what human life was like for these people over the whole sweep of it. Asking them questions about their experience, about how they interpreted their experience, about what made life meaningful and happy for them, such as it was, and and what cost happiness along the way. There was one dominant theme, one central finding in the study, and it shouldn't surprise us at all. Quote, 
Good relationships keep us healthier and happier. Period. The central finding of a study that's been going since 1938 is that good relationships keep us healthier and happier. Shocking no one. It's just not debatable. All of us need people to love and people to be loved by. And I'm not talking mainly about romantic love here. I mean, that matters. It is wonderful. But I'm talking about love in general. I'm talking about just relationships of care with people that, that you know and that know you. Close friendships is what I'm talking about. And, and, and faithful colleagues and, and brothers and sisters and, and parents and children. And, and yeah, husbands and wives too. There are tons of things we enjoy about life that contribute to happiness, that, that feel meaningful from, from work and travel and music and sports and good food. But, but you've seen it in countless movies and books and memoirs and whatever else, if not in the people around you. Those who sacrifice relationships for the sake of their career or so that they can indulge themselves on more of the other things that we tend to like to enjoy, those people end up miserable because those people end up alone. And there's nothing in life that correlates to happiness more strongly than having strong and, and, and meaningful relationships over time. The best thing about life is love. And that's where things get so painful for us. Because sooner or later, everybody loses everybody they love. And the first time it happens to you, it's the first time you lose someone who's, who's really close. Somebody who's unique and, and precious. You can also lose a sort of innocence about your life for a while before you've been through that it can seem like some people are just too precious not to be there you know, people around whom your whole world seems to revolve people who are like like pillars on which your experience of life rests and, and if they weren't there life wouldn't be there you lose somebody like that it can seem almost impossible but there's nothing on earth more inevitable that's the awakening that New Yorker writer Catherine Schultz experienced when her father died sooner than anyone had expected. And she puts it like this in her memoir, Lost and Found. Our losses are profoundly disorienting, she writes. Not because they defy reality, but because they reveal it. They reveal to us that loss is normal. As surely as two plus two equals four, grief flows from the two simple facts. The best thing about life is love. And eventually everyone loses everyone. It's a painful math that forces us to confront what Schultz calls the most enduring problem of love, which is also the most enduring problem of life. How to live with the fact that we'll lose it. I think that's the right question. If you haven't asked that question yet, you should be. It's important for you to live an honest life, facing up to the way the world really is. How can you live with the fact that you'll lose those you love? That's an important and appropriate thing for you to be asking right now. How can we live with the fact that, you, that, that, that the more you love someone, the more it will hurt you when you lose them? And is there any way to draw out that sting from what I can see, there's two common ways that people often today look to, to draw some of the sting of death, of loss, out on earth. And neither one of them really works. 
you could try, first of all, rebranding death as life. I see that one pretty often. You might think of this one as the Lion King option. I've talked about it up here before. That's nothing to worry about because, you know, it's really just part of the circle of life. The antelope eats the grass. Lion eats the antelope. Grass eats the lion. That way the next antelope has plenty to eat before the next lion comes to eat him. We're all just part of one big circle in which no one ever really dies. They just live on in the digestive systems of everything that comes after them. So, what are you crying about? Well, the problem is nobody can live like this. We just know better. That's just not what it's true. People matter more than that. Even Simba knew better than that, didn't he, kids? You remember what happened? When Mufasa gets thrown off that cliff by his evil brother and trampled by the herd of stampeding water buffalo, Simba didn't comfort himself by the fact that the antelope of tomorrow would have plenty of well-fertilized grass to feed on. He didn't care about that. He cries his eyes out because he doesn't want his dad to be dead. He knows that death is not just one of those things. It's devastating. It's, it's personal and it's, it's irreversible. There is no circle of life. There's only a brutally straight line. Life begins, life ends, and the living go on with the hole that was left behind. That option won't work. Another option that I see happen, play out a lot out there is what you might call rebranding loss as gain. We can face up to the reality that nobody gets to keep what's theirs, that, that time takes everything away, that, that, and, and, and say, you know what, knowing we're going to lose it just makes us appreciate it more while we got it. Helps us focus. Helps us really grab hold of and squeeze as much out of the things that we have in our lives while we have them. That's the kind of lemonade that Schultz makes out of life's lemons. She says, loss, which seems only to take away, adds its own kind of necessary contribution. Disappearance reminds us to notice. Transience to cherish. Fragility to defend. Loss is a kind of external conscience urging us to make better use of our finite days. And you can kind of see where she's coming from with that. I mean, knowing you're going to lose something does sometimes make you hold it tighter, pay closer attention to it. That can make life sweeter and richer and more, more alive for a time. I think there's even some wisdom in this perspective, particularly if your loved ones are still alive. And the fact that both my parents are living and my wife is living and my three children are living and the fact that I know that life doesn't last forever, I do want to learn from that, to, to pay attention to them and to enjoy every second I have with them. And, and again, there's some, there's some wisdom in treasuring every moment. It can bring some gratitude and focus to these days that we're living. But whatever wisdom there might be here, there is precious little comfort in that perspective for anyone who's already lost someone. For those who have loved and lost and now long to go back. At best what you get from a perspective like this one is a kick in the pants. To get over the grief and be glad you had what you had when you had it. Because some people have it worse. There may be some wisdom in it but there is absolutely no hope. No hope in either one of these options. And when you're faced with the death of somebody you love. You are going to need something better than this. You're going to need more than these false comforts. What you're going to need and what you're going to crave is the irreplaceable hope at the heart of Christianity. And that's what I want to talk to you about now from 1 Thessalonians 4. So, number two, why Christian hope is irreplaceable. 
why Christian hope is irreplaceable. I want to show you four reasons from what Paul has to say in 1 Thessalonians 4. Four reasons that Christian hope is irreplaceable. First of all, Christian hope is unique. It's unique. And that's because the Bible's perspective on death overall is unique. Part of what makes death so painful, according to the scriptures, is that it's not actually normal. It's an intruder in a beautiful world that wasn't supposed to be like this. And that perspective on death, that was unique in its own time and it's unique today. That is not a, a typical perspective on death. Paul's alluding to that in verse 13. When he says that he doesn't want his friends, his brothers, to grieve as others do who have no hope. He's alluding to the normal way of seeing death at that time. He's writing about Christians who have already died, two Christians who are grieving over their death, and he wants their experience of grief to be different from the grief of those who don't share their hope. In other words, those around them who aren't Christians see death and grieve death differently. So what does he have in mind? Well, in the ancient world, uh, this ancient Greco-Roman world where Paul lived and worked, death was just one of those things as, as just kind of a normal, inevitable part of life that was foolish to push back on. We grieve about it because we can't help ourselves, but, but we should try to grieve as little as possible. That was the idea. You could do that in advance through stoicism. Pull yourself back from connecting too deeply to anything you're going to lose, detaching your heart from what will only uh, break it eventually. That was one option. Or you could just squeeze as much goodness out of your life for as long as you have it. The Epicureans liked this option. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Life isn't going to last, so just live it up while you've got it. Others just steeled themselves. Resignation was their approach. Look, we can't change it. All you can do is brace yourself for it. But either way, death is just ultimate in the way they saw things. Death was the end, and hope was not on the table. But according to the Bible, death is not just one of those things. It's not just a basic part of life. In other words, we are not born to die after a few brief years noticing things to cherish before we lose them. That's not who we are, according to the Scriptures. We were created by a God who knows and loves us to be known and to know him. We were created for relationships of love, not just with him, but with one another. And death entered this world as an imposter, as an enemy unleashed on us because of the just consequences of our sin against God. And now it lives in this world as an enemy to be defeated. That's what Jesus came to do. Christian hope is unique because it treats death as an enemy and Christ as its conqueror. I love the way Hebrews 2 talks about this. Describes Jesus' mission here on earth as a rescue mission. That he came down and took on a body like ours, went to the cross and through the grave to defeat our enemy for us. Hebrews 2 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, since God's children have bodies that die, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. He put on a body that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In other words, because Jesus died and rose again, everybody who trusts in him will rise again as he has. That's unique. You're not going to find a hope like that anywhere else. And that's why Christian hope is irreplaceable. Second reason it's irreplaceable is that Christian hope is concrete. Christian hope is concrete. It fulfills our deepest longings, but it is not just wishful thinking. This, this idea that Jesus has defeated death, it's not just a nice idea. It's not just inspiring, an inspirational frame of mind. It, it, it's rooted in history. It, it's observable in history. It was literally observed in history by people who knew him to be dead, then saw him alive again in a body that's as real as mine or yours. So we believe death has been defeated ultimately because as Paul puts it, look at verse 14, Jesus died and rose again. That's why we think it's all true. If you're here this morning considering Christianity, this is one of the most important things for you to know about us. That, that our hope in life and death ties back not to a specific way of life that we're practicing right now. It ties back not to a set of ideas about the world. It ties back to something that happened in the world in real time. It's ultimately not a way of life, Christianity, but, 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 a, but a set of news about something that somebody really did for real people in the real world. Jesus died and Jesus rose again. That makes our hope concrete. You won't find that anywhere else. Third reason that Christian hope is irreplaceable is that Christian hope is personal. Christian hope is personal. See, Christians weren't the first people, actually, to hold to the immortality of the soul or one version or another of life after death. In the ancient world, there was a lot of, pretty much people assumed there was some sort of life after death. You go to any museum that's got ancient collections, you'll see all kind of stuff about life after death. Um, especially think about the ancient Egyptians, even many of the Greeks and Romans that would have been Paul's background. They had their ideas about what happens next. Maybe your soul lives on in some sort of shadowy underworld or you get reincarnated in some other life form. But one way or another, maybe you live on. But the, the, the difference is that in Christian hope, you live on as you. No one else thought that was going to happen. No one thought that your life after death reflects your life and your own identity now. But the Christian hope for life after death is personal just simply because Jesus died and rose again as himself. He rose again in a recognizable body. He had intact memories. And his relationships with people he knew before he died, they were still there for him when he rose again. People who knew him before knew him now. Paul says in verse 14, look back at it again. Since Jesus died and rose again, even so, you know, in the same way, just like he died and rose again, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or those who have already died. In other words, our resurrection will be like Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus rose as Jesus. Through Jesus, all who trust him will rise as themselves in gloriously renewed bodies that will never die again. You can find that hope all over the place. There's plenty of other scriptures that teach it, but, but the key to all of it is Jesus' own resurrected body. Jesus, when he met with his friends, he held out hands that had scars on them because he rose as Jesus. 
When he ate with his disciples and cooked food for them on that beach, he digested what he ate because his body worked just like it used to. He clearly had properties that he didn't have before. You know, sometimes he could hide who he was. I don't know how that works. He actually entered into a room with a locked door. I don't know how that worked with a body that could digest fish. There's a lot I don't know about our gloriously redeemed bodies. They will be on a different dimension than what we experience now. But I'll say this because it was true of Jesus. Those who knew him before knew him then. And so it will be for all those God raises up at the end. Which brings me to the fourth thing that makes Christian hope irreplaceable. The Christian hope is satisfying. Satisfying. It satisfies the longing we have not just for life after death but as Tim Keller put it for love after death we don't just want life after death we're longing for love after death and that is what Jesus promises us through our gospel I think this whole section in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians this whole section that we're looking at this morning It seems to be written to encourage Christians who had just lost some loved ones and now were worried they might not get in on the future that Jesus had promised them when Jesus comes again. Remember, these were new Christians. The whole package was new to them. They didn't fully understand how it all worked. They're still learning. Paul doesn't want them to be uninformed, he says. He's writing to inform them how death works when you die in Jesus. Because what they would have been assuming What they would have brought to their Christianity was that death was a terrible and final separation. That means they're all sitting around waiting on Jesus to return. They've got this hope that he's coming back and the whole new world is coming with him. And they're all in this thing together. But then some of them start dying. Christians, brothers and sisters in this church are dying. And the ones who live are wondering, well, now they're in the grave and, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. When he comes, will we have to leave them behind? Are they now going to miss out on the thing we've been hoping for? And it made sense from the way they they used to think. They'd always assumed death was permanent. So now what? Will we live and reign with Jesus apart from them? And Paul wrote this section to say, no, absolutely not. Those you love are not finally lost. God's going to raise them up just like he raised up Jesus. They're going to live with him and with each other in this new world forever. Here's how it'll go. Pick up in verse 16. The Lord himself will descend with a cry of command. I love this phrase. This is the one who spoke. Let there be light. And there was light. This is the one who spoke, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus walked out of his tomb, dragging his grave clothes behind him. And now this same voice will utter the same command. A command as broad as all the world, but as specific as every name ever graven on his hands and written on his heart. Whose names are on your list? Who have you lost that you have loved who died in faith? I'm thinking about my grandparents' names right now. And one day Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he will cry out a command. James, come out. Walter, come out. Lillian, come out. Who's on your list? You know, all your names are on my list. 
I think of Jesus coming back and speaking your names into the world, his world, and your bodies rising from the place where they have lain for as long as they've lain there. Because that's, that's happening. When this voice speaks, whatever he says is done. He will speak with a cry of command. The trumpet of God will blow and look what will happen. The dead in Christ will rise first. They won't be left behind. The ones who have already died, they get to go first. Then verse 17, we who are alive, those who are still left at his coming, who haven't yet died, we get caught up in it too. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. What Paul has in mind here is a wonderful ancient ceremony that was typical when a dignitary would come to visit another town. In the ancient Greek world, the, the town, the city fathers, the officials, the, the brass of the town would go out of the town to meet the, the general or the official who was coming to visit. They would all go out to them and then they would escort them back into their town together. That's what he has in mind here. Not, a, not, a, not our spirits flying away into the clouds to live in cloud land forever. No, no, Jesus is coming back here to make all things new here. But those who, are, those who are raised from the dead and those who are alive when he comes will be caught up to meet him and come back with him to be part of reigning with him in his new world. That's our future. And because we're united to Jesus, we'll also be united to each other. If nothing can separate us from his love, Nothing can separate us from each other either. That's why Paul writes verse 17 the way he does. We are caught up with them. These people we know who have died in faith. We will together always be with the Lord. What he's doing is nailing down a foundation of one of the sweetest aspects of our hope as Christians. We will know and love one another through Jesus forever. That's our hope. We want love after death. And through Christ, in Christ, we'll have it. That's why our hope is irreplaceable. Before we turn to our final point, I do want to stop for a moment and, 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 and just acknowledge the fact that this is a hope that, that Paul says comes only through Jesus. That's verse 14. Jesus' death and resurrection happen once and for all. Never has to die again, never has to rise again. That's done. But the only way to benefit it from that is through faith in him. We talked about death as, as a kind of intruder in this world that didn't start out this way. But it didn't sneak into this world when God wasn't paying attention. The Bible says that death entered this world as a punishment, a just punishment for sin against God. When we sin against him, we claim the lives he's given us as our own, as if he didn't give them to us. Every sin is a shaking of the fist to God, whether we realize it or not, saying, my life, my terms, my world, not yours. It is just that God take that life that he gave. And it, is, it was Jesus' work to bear the just punishment of that sin on the cross for anyone who would trust in him. His life was taken because we deserve it if we trust in him. But if we don't trust in him, everything I've just said about this hope doesn't apply to us. So trust in him. Friend, trust in him today. You want love after death and you can have it, but only through Jesus. Jesus.
Now, the last few minutes that I've got, I want us to reflect together on how to grieve in hope. How does this hope that is set before us, the hope that Jesus is coming back to give new life to all who have died in faith, shape our experience of grief in the meantime when we have so much reason to be sad? That's where I want to finish this morning. And I want to give you three examples. Three examples of how to grieve in hope. The first thing I want to say is that grieving in hope means grieving with honesty. It means grieving with honesty. When Paul says he doesn't want his friends to grieve as those who don't have hope, verse 13, he doesn't say he doesn't want them to grieve. Did you see that? You know, he's assuming grief. Grief makes sense. Grief is important and appropriate. What matters to Paul is how they grieve. Because Paul knows... The truth is that we're still walking through the valley of the shadow of death every day. And we're, and we're trusting the resurrection of Jesus means we're going to rise someday too. And we're looking to him as, as what Paul calls a first fruits, this, this, this sign and promise that a harvest is coming. But for now, we don't see it yet. We, we still grow old. We still get sick. We still suffer accidents. We still lose loved ones. Because death is our enemy for as long as it has its day. We're right to grieve it wherever we see it. It'd be wrong not to. And friends, sometimes I think with the best of intentions, we as Christians can fall into our own version of the the death rebranded as life option. Where there's really, as if there's nothing to see here, we shrug our shoulders and move on. When a loved one dies, sometimes we can just focus on the fact that they're in a better place. We can hold celebrations of life more often than funerals for the dead. And, and we have good reasons for acknowledging they're in a better place and for celebrating their lives. By all means, we do. But if that's it, if that's all we do, we're missing, we're missing a crucial piece to this picture. They may be in a better place than they, are, than they were in when they, when they died. But they are not in the place that we're longing for. We're in a resurrected body. They're reunited with those they love, living in a world where death is not a thing. They're not there yet. And in the meantime, we miss them and are right to. So grieving over them honors them and tells the truth about the world. We ought to be grieving. And in fact, it is Christ-like when we grieve over those that we lose. And I think the best example of, of this posture of grieving and hope is Jesus. When he comes to the grave of Lazarus in John chapter 11, Jesus knows exactly what he's about to do. He's the one who decided to let, let Lazarus die. He could have got there in time to save him. He chose not to on purpose. John 11 tells us that. He wanted them to believe in him. So he let him die so he could raise him up again. And he knew he could. He knew he had it in him. It wasn't like a, 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 a maybe when he walked up to the tomb of Lazarus. Maybe I'll have the right set of words. You know, he knows exactly what he's about to do. But when Jesus walks up to that tomb and he sees the place where his friend is buried and he sees the grief of his friends who are still alive, who are mourning over this brother that they just lost, Jesus weeps before he speaks to him and gives him life again. Jesus held that tension that we're meant to hold. He grieved in hope and we should too. It's Christ-like when we cry over the brokenness of a world that isn't supposed to be like this. Your grief is the reason your hope is so precious. So be honest about it. The second thing I want to say about, about grieving and hope is that we ought to grieve with one another. That's what it would look like to grieve in hope. We need to grieve with one another. Did you notice how Paul ends the section, verse 18? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Therefore. Because Christ died and rose again. 
because Christ is going to come back. Because at his voice, the dead in Christ will rise. Because those who remain will be caught up to meet him with them. And because we will always be with Jesus. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Don't stop talking to your grieving friends about Jesus. Everybody who has known grief knows grief is isolating. It's kind of, it's part of the cruel twist of the knife that that comes with grief. It's the separation from somebody you love, driving separation from those who are still around you. And it's only natural. To some extent, it's only natural because no one around you can fully understand what it is that you're feeling. They can't fully share what you've lost. And sometimes it's not your fault if you're isolated. Sometimes people who aren't grieving can pull back from those who are because it's easier to pull back than to take on somebody else's pain as yours when your life feels complicated enough as it is. But Paul is calling us to a different way. He's calling us to share sorrows, to grieve with one another in the hope of what Jesus has done. That's why our church covenant that we sign as members it promises we're not just going to rejoice together, we're going we're to mourn together too. It's part of what it means for us to live together in Christian love. When you belong to a body and one member suffers, all suffer together. So if you've got a friend who's grieving right now, you need to hear two things. First, do not fear to enter in, no matter how complicated it might be. I know you won't always know what to say. I know you won't be able to fix it. I know you have easier things you could be doing with your time. But you just showing up, you just being there, you just sitting down with or giving a hug to your friend who suffered, it counts for something. It's essential. They need you to be there. Don't let the fact that you don't know what to say or that you don't know how this is going to go or that this might get complicated hold you back. God hasn't asked you to fix anything. He's just asked you to comfort those who are in any affliction with the same comfort he has comforted you with in yours. Which brings me to the second thing you need to hear. Do not fear to bring hope. You're going to have to be careful. You don't want to slap Jesus on as a Band-Aid. There are absolutely insensitive ways to talk about the gospel to those who are grieving. You don't want to pretend like hope takes hurt away because it doesn't. And you don't want to bring up Jesus as a change of subject when they want to talk about the grief because he's not a change of subject. There is nothing more relevant to grief than who Jesus is and what Jesus has already done. So be careful when you apply this medicine. But friends, do not hold back from this medicine. It's essential. Your friends need it. Tell, Encourage them with these words. It's all true. Remind them of that. And then finally... To grieve in hope is to grieve with purpose. To remember that loss like these, it serves the same purpose as all of our suffering. That's what we talked about last week. When we talked about suffering and what God does through it. Grief, like like all kind of suffering, grief, grief refines us. It can deepen our love for what doesn't change as we suffer through changes we didn't want. As long as we live, or as long as Jesus tarries, our grief is is partly a gift from God to drive us deeper into his love and to guard us against any love for each other that's not centered on him. We have to be careful that when we long for heaven, 
we're not ultimately, not mainly longing to see people again. At the very beginning of this series, we talked about how little we talk about heaven these days. I think the one exception to that is that we do talk about seeing loved ones who have died. And that's appropriate. I've spent this whole time talking to you about why that's appropriate. But friends, heaven is not ultimately about us seeing the people that we love again. Heaven is centered on God, the God who made us. The God who made us to know and to enjoy Him forever. And sometimes it's losing someone that we love in this life that drives us deeper into His love and reminds us or shows us who we have in Him as He is for Himself. We began the sermon with this depressing question. Like what, what is life after the death of someone you love when you don't believe in an afterlife? And I, and I think it's fair to end with the same question, but recast a little bit. What is your life after the death of one you love when you do believe in an afterlife? When you, when you can grieve in hope? And the answer to that is that your life, even if it's changed, is not over. As long as God gives you breath, you can do what God made you to do. You were created. Your chief purpose for being on this earth is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And in your deepest grief, facing your greatest pain, you may have your greatest opportunity to do what God put you here to do. To glorify Him by running further into him, by tasting of this love that is stronger than death and seeing from experience what it is to have him as your comforter. If you do, you won't be disappointed. I can promise you that. You will not be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would comfort all those who are grieving this morning by these good words that you have spoken. And we pray that you would make us into a church that feeds on comfort that is always ready to encourage each other with the hope of the gospel. I pray that today, this brief time in 1 Thessalonians 4, would make us more equipped for that work, more confident about taking it up. And I pray that you would work by it as we speak to each other from these words. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.